I'd like to have you turn to Jude. We're going to dig in today. Let me give you some heads up about this. Uh, We're only going to go three weeks here. But the last time I taught on Jude, I went 15 weeks. It is rich, deep, and amazing. And so here's what I want to let you know. Uh, There's a lot of things I'm not going to get into this morning, but I put them on a video that that will give you background. It'll talk about Jude, talk about the recipients of the letter. And uh, it's about a seven-minute video. I'd love for you to go watch it. I think it will make Jude come alive to you when you realize some of the things that are in it. I also want you to know that I'm going to blog starting tomorrow every single day about the book of Jude. So the way to get to the video is to go to the Crossroads website. There's a place that says Chuck's blog. (laughs) Real creative. And uh, so, you know, that's it. Click on it. You can see the videos there. And then starting tomorrow, every day, I want to have you read Jude and study with me and and dig in. And that way we're going to get depth out of this. We're going to be able to go straight to all meat. And then even the weekend messages, I'm hoping, do that. So that's what I want to have you think about and do. Love to have you dig in. Love to have you reading every day. Your normal reading plus Jude, and so we can get more out of this. Let's pray, and I'm ready to jump in with you. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would really move. I really want your spirit to move. We're in a time like no other in the world's history in this moment, and uh, we know that you told us through the holy apostles things we need to be aware of and never let go of. So I pray right now that as we open your word, God, you would drive it deeply into our hearts and minds and awaken us. I pray for anyone today who needs, who needs healing because of hurt that's been caused. Words that have wounded deeply and taken root in their minds. Relationships that have been lost. I pray that today you're going to open up a time of healing for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, for a long, long time, the bathroom was called the necessary room. Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to the bathroom, you'd say, I'm going to the necessary room. Now, why was it called the necessary room? It's because when you got to go, you got to go. Right? Isn't that true? It's a necessity to go. Like right now, if it hits you, this will be the longest sermon ever if you try to wait it out. So, by the way, if you have to go, just get up and tell us number one or two. No, I'm kidding. But, uh, um, but you know what? It, it's, that's the truth about it. Uh, I was, 1983, I'm driving on the freeway in downtown Los Angeles, and I see a billboard that is the funniest billboard I've ever seen in my life. And it's, it's, it's by Pepto-Bismol. I'm sitting in rush hour traffic and look up and it says these words, diarrhea, the last mile is the longest. <laughs> Matter of fact, here it is. Look at, there you go. And, and so I, they finally took it down after years, but I thought it was a great billboard. Now, what I want to tell you is Jude. Jude has a necessity. He said there's something that consumed him, a holy discontent, an all-consuming passion had taken over, and that's why he writes this letter. I want you to grab that. It's a necessity for him to do this. It's a necessity for him to dig into this. And so he opens up this letter by talking about who he's writing to, and these are the people he's giving warning to. And I hope this is you, and I hope this is me. And in Jude 1, 1, it says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm giving more background on the video, but let me just hit real quickly on this so we're all on the same page. He says, I'm writing to the called, and in the video I go into the fact we have three callings, and and you have three callings, but you're called by God. 
The second is you're beloved in God the Father. Four times he'll use the word beloved. And in this case, he says, I'm telling you who you are. God loves you as a father. You're beloved by him. And God wants to do that with you and for you. Jesus in John 14 verse 6 said these words. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, here's what I don't want you to miss. Everybody will one day actually be before the throne of God. Everybody will stand before God one day and kneel before God one day. But that's the time of judgment. Everyone goes before the great white throne of judgment. But what I want you to know is if you are beloved by God the Father, you're not standing before your judge or kneeling before your judge. It's your dad. And when you go to a time of judgment, it feels really good. It's your dad. If you go into court and the guy who walks out your dad, you're like, all right. You know, I, you're in. And that's who God is to you. By the way, God is not everyone's father. He's only the father of those who come through Jesus Christ. Only through Christ do we come into that relationship. Yet that's what God desires. By the way, if you're here today and you're brand new to all this, God wants to adopt you. He wants to truly be your father, in reality be your father. But that only comes through Jesus Christ. There's no other way and there's no other name by which we're saved. And there's no other hope of salvation other than through Christ. And that's why he says that. I want you to know something. I want you to know you're beloved. And he said, I love you. And he's going to say that. Judah's going to say, you're beloved by me. You're beloved by God the Father. And that's who we are. Then he says the next words, you're kept for Jesus Christ. In other words, you're in his hands, you're in his protection. When you're beloved by God the Father, you're protected by Jesus Christ. You're kept under guard. In John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about his sheep. And he says these words. He said, I give them life, I give life, eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you catch that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, the idea here is when you are in God the Father, when you're beloved in God the Father, you're kept for Jesus Christ, and no one can get that away from you. No one can take it away from you. And as long as God has hands on you, you're safe and you're protected. God wants to protect you. By the way, even from the devil... Later on in John 17, Jesus would pray a prayer. And he prays these words in verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I said, they're going to be there. There's going to be attack. There's going to be a horrible time. I ask you to keep them from the evil one, from Satan himself. When we're in the hands of God, we're protected. That's the big key. When we're out of the hands of God, we're not under protection. When uh, I was a, a young child, I'm going to say probably five years old, yeah, maybe four or five, all of a sudden dogs started biting me. Now, I don't mean just a little. I don't know what it was, but, but I remember I was over at a friend's house the first time it happened. My mom and dad are there. We're all playing this dog's there. Uh, everyone else is petting the dog. I reach out to pet him and he bites me as hard as he can. <laughs> And you know, when you're little, I mean, anybody gets bit by a dog. Later on, I get bit again by another dog and get bit by another dog. And one time we lived in this Air Force Base area in Georgia. I'm running to a friend's house and I happened to cut across the yard where this dog was that I had seen time and again, but it was on a chain. It was a big bulldog and it rushed me, knocked me to the ground and mauled me. I mean, people had to come pull it off me. I was all chewed up. I had to get stitches. I mean, I'm a little kid. I'm crying. 
And my dad saw now that I'm having this phobia, this fear of dogs, and he's trying to get me over it. He gets other dogs around me that I can pet and make sure it's okay. And he's just trying to get me to see, but, but I've still got this, this, you know, this shuddering feeling whenever a dog came near me. And one day we're walking on kind of a really, truly a country road. And this dog comes out of nowhere, big dog, at least me at five, it looked huge. And it's running at us, growling, hair up on its back. I turn, I'm starting to cry and shake. My dad whips me up in his arms. The dog comes. It doesn't want my dad. It's jumping for me. And my dog's hitting the thing and hitting the thing. Well, now the dog's trying to get away. And my dad grabs it, holds it down, and beats it a couple of times. Puts it into submission. Drops me on the ground and lets me see that he had it. I got to tell you, I thought my dad was Superman in that moment. I did. I thought uh, there's nobody tougher than my dad. And whenever I was in his arms, there was no need to be afraid. By the way, that was a day it kind of the switch flipped. And for some reason, him showing me that I wasn't afraid of dogs anymore. But here's the reason I bring that up. We're kept for Jesus Christ. We're beloved by God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. And when he has us in his arms and in his hands, no one can take you from him. You have to choose. You've got a choice. As long as you're there, he's got you. And Jude said, I want you to know that's who I'm writing to. But then he gets into the reason he's writing, the necessity. And look at verse four. I want you to grab this. He says in verse, or I'm sorry, verse three, verse three. Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. He said, I really wanted to write to you about the fact that God loves us. That we're in the same family. That you and I share in this together. That, that we're all under the God's love and grace and mercy and cleansing and filled with this Holy Spirit. He said, that's what I wanted to write about. But he says this, but I felt a necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. He said, something's consuming me. Something's happening that I can't get over. Something's before us and within us that we've got to combat against. We've got to wrestle against this and fight against this and do it with passion. That's what he says. By the way, Peter felt the same way. And it's very, very likely that he and Peter got together and talked about this because it consumed them. And in 2 Peter, you see Peter writing almost the exact same words at time with the same illustration that Jude writes about. And there was a problem in the church that they said, we've got to stand against this. And it was the problem of Gnosticism. Now, I want to have you understand Gnosticism because Gnosticism today is alive and well. Uh, It it puts on uh, new experiences to hide under and new names to hide under. But Gnosticism's alive and well within the church today, taking people captive, hurting them, wrecking churches, ruining lives. It's around today. Now, the idea of Gnosticism comes from the idea of the Greek word gnosos, where we get Gnostic, and the word gnosos means to know. It means to know. And the Gnostics taught this, that they had a special knowledge from God, and if you knew what they knew, then you would know God better, and you would be closer to God. But if you don't know what they know, when you don't have the experience they have, you're always going to never have what they have with God. They use this to create superiority and authority and and to cause them to be the ones that people look to. And the danger is rather than coming to serve, they come to take authority in people's lives. But it's only based on the fact you could never know. You could never know 
anything about God unless you come to them. That's why in 1 John, John's writing against this. In 1 John, he says this, you have no need for anyone to teach you because you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, now, John isn't saying we don't need teachers. What he was saying, you don't need people taking authority in your life. By the way, you have a Bible. I have a Bible. We're equal in that. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. We're equal in that. And you know what? Is we need to understand that we have what we need from God. Peter would say these words. He said, all things that pertain to life and godliness are found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't need it in the knowledge of some other person. It's found in the knowledge of Jesus. And we all need to look to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And and so the Gnostics had this special revelation time going. And you need to know that God has given you and I an anointing and given us the word of God so that we can find God. And that's how he leads us to him. We don't need someone to stand in our way. We might need someone here, ready, to point the way, but not to stand in the way or take authority in your life. Now, the second thing the Gnostics believed was this, and I think it's very, uh, um, a little bit complex, but a very intriguing way of looking at things, very demented. And what it is, is the Gnostics taught that when you are born again, you're born again in your spirit, but not in your flesh. When God comes to you and the Holy Spirit comes, it's just a spiritual thing. It has nothing to do with your body or with anything outwardly. Now, why, why is that a scary thing? Well, number one, it's not true. But number two, they taught this. That, therefore, because of that, whatever you do with your flesh doesn't matter in your relationship with God. So here's the, what they said. You, you know, you could get drunk and it doesn't affect your relationship with God. You could have sexual immorality. It doesn't affect your relationship with God. You know, because your body is separate and God's not taking your body to heaven. So you could do whatever you want to with your body. You could go to cultic ritual groups and and do all those kind of things. And and they taught a thing called licentiousness. A license to sin. Licentiousness means a license to sin. That you know what? Because you've given your life to the Lord, therefore you could do whatever you want to do and you and God are okay, which the Bible does not teach. And Jude is going to contend against He had a necessity to say this isn't true. And because of their teaching, because of what they were doing, people were falling away from the faith. They were taking people captive who would choose to leave the hand of God where they would be kept to go into a life that would take them away from everything. Now, by the way, why is that important to us today? Because it's always been true, but you're going to see that Jude will say later, it's especially true in the last days. And the times we live in, we live at a time like no other. We're watching, literally the countdown clock is begun. We're seeing the signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. And one of those signs of his coming is an apostasy within the church. People falling away. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says these words. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. And Gnosticism and those kind of doctrines, which by the way are around today, are from the very pit of hell. And, that, and through that, people paying attention to that will, will fall away. And the Spirit clearly says some will fall away because they'll be sucked in by this, succumb to this, and they'll leave the hands of the Father that wants to protect them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking about the rapture. 
Uh, uh, the word rapture is a, comes from a Latin word to be snatched up. It's found in 1 Thessalonians where it says we will all be caught up together in the air with the Lord. And the word there in, in Latin is rapture. And one day that's going to happen. One day in a twinkling of an eye, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 50, you and I will be transformed in a moment, caught up in the air with the Lord. If you're brand new to all this, I know it sounds wild, but I got to tell you it's going to be true. If the rapture happened right now, all of a sudden, a huge number of people here would just disappear. You'd look around and they're gone and you'd know you're left. <laughs> By the way, I'd be gone. And uh, I hope you would be too. But you know what? It's, it's, he said, I want to give you the two great signs that precede the rapture. The two great signs that precede the rapture. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it, the rapture will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The word apostasy literally means this. It means to divorce from. If you're married and you divorce, then at least one person, if not both, has committed an apostasy. They've divorced themselves from a relationship they were in. To have an apostasy, you have to be in a relationship and then you leave it. You divorce yourself from it. And, and the great apostasy is going to happen in the church when, when whole churches and people within the church divorce themselves from the true faith. The apostasy is moving today. We see leaders coming and espousing doctrines of demons that are being taught by supposed church leaders. And we see it happening all the time. And they don't give true honor to the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Uh, right now, there's a, a teaching that's flowing within many churches, which is modern day universalism. The idea that, that there is no hell. By the way, Jesus taught on hell 33 times. I think there's a hell. 17 of those times he talked about it being eternal fire and punishment. Uh, Jesus didn't have it wrong. And there's a teaching today that says there is no hell and somehow everybody goes to heaven no matter who you believe in or what you believe. And there's books out about it and, and college uh, classes and Christian colleges taught on it. And it's clearly, clearly not true when you study scripture. But people are turning away from the uniqueness of Christ and they're sucking people into it. And, and it's, causing, it's causing people to, apostate, to commit apostasy and be a part of the apostasy. We see this all the time. And, and Jude is saying, you and I need to contend earnestly for the faith. We need to make sure we never, ever let go of that. Um, this faith that once for all is, to, is, is given to the saints. Do you see what it says there in verse 3? It's a faith once for all given to the saints. Now, what Jude is appealing to is what we call apostolic authority. If you look at verse 17, it says this, but you beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas saying, we know the Old Testament is true. And what we do is we go under apostolic authority. And once the apostles have passed, this faith is once for all handed down to the saints. There's not going to be a new book of the Bible given or written. You know, we're not going to walk in here today and go, I've got some good news for you. There's a brand new book of the Bible. It's called the book of Ronnie Roa. Just put it right after Revelation. <laughs> See, you already know it's true and I know it's true. And what he says is God, God provided the Bible, inspired the Bible, and protected the Bible. What we have today, we know for sure is what we had back then. It hasn't been changed. And he said it was once for all handed down to the saints. 
It was once for all given to us, not going to be an ongoing dynamic thing. It was a one time. And we have, according to Peter, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean once for all handed down the saints? It means this. Now, don't miss this. It means there's not going to be some new experience that comes along that's not in the Bible. Now, this is really, to me, important. If there's a new experience that supposedly gets you closer to God and it's not in the Bible, if it's not of the word and not from the word, then it's not of God. And you need to grab that. And there's all sorts of these things popping up. Oh, if this happened to you and that happened to you, where, where's it at in the Bible? Oh, it's not there, but, but I've never felt closer to God. Well, that gets real scary. And there's not gonna be a new teaching. If it's not in the word and of the word, it's not from God. And you and I need to cling to what's in the word. We need to hold on to what's in the word. And we need to make sure we never let go of what was once for all handed down to the saints. Isaiah, Isaiah talks about this. All throughout the Bible, the warning's given that you and I need to cling to the word. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, this is powerful to me. Listen to what Isaiah says. When they say to you, when anyone comes to you and says, consult the mediums and the spiritists, the spiritists are people who said, I've got the special inspiration from God, who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? Now notice what he says, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed, famished, and will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be driven away into utter darkness. He said, why? Because they don't cling to the word. And, and people who get caught up in that are leaving God's word and leaving the hands of God the Father. And they're being consumed by something that in the end takes away the light of God in their life and drives them into gloom and darkness and despair. And I've seen this happen over and over again. I've been around long enough to watch it happen again. And that's why I see why Judah's saying we need to contend earnestly for the faith. I've seen people sucked in and pulled away and choose to go away and deceived into these things. And by the way, I've been around long enough to watch the outcome of it. And we need to be careful. We need to beware and be aware. Verse four says this. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, which is a license to sin, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what makes it even scarier. It's an enemy who's within. It's an enemy within. We already know that, that, that Christianity and the church has an enemy without that's attacking us. But it's scarier when it's an enemy within who've crept in unnoticed and now we're attacking and hurting people in devastating ways. And uh, I think the danger is we drop our guard. Now I'm never ever saying we shouldn't be loving and caring and we don't want to have bitterness, that's for sure. But we've got to be careful. And uh, I remember a night that we got a phone call a girl who was in the last year of college called just devastated, crying and crying. And I mean, those kind of gut-wrenching cries. And she, we had her come over to our house and she sat on our couch and Pam sat next to her trying to comfort her. And she is crying so hard. She's devastated. 
And finally, she was able to tell us what happened. She uh, was dating a guy, and uh, they went to his apartment, and no one was there. And they were sitting on the couch, and he started making sexual advances towards her. Now, she had had this happen before and was always careful and always ready and always like, no way, you know, you're not going to do this and would immediately break up with the guy. But the reason this happened was because the guy was a pastor. And she said that. She said, she sat there saying, oh my gosh, this can't be happening. I, I, I can't, this can't be going. And she literally said, it was almost like she was trapped in her body and she let them do things to her that, and, 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 and that she would never want someone she's not married to to do. And she thought, but he's a godly man and, and, I, and I trust him and everybody in the church loves him. And, and, but he, I just can't believe. And she was so shocked and so caught off guard that she said in her mind, she's screaming out, no, no, no. But she couldn't get her mouth to speak. Why? Because her guard was down. She believed he was a Christian. She believed he was a pastor. She believed he was a godly man. Then why would he do this? And then she finally was able literally to run from the apartment. And, and then she just didn't know what to do. She felt so dirty and humiliated and violated. And, and she goes, and I didn't stop him until I ran. And it just devastated her. You see, when the enemy's from within... When it's the one who says they're a Christian and is even taking leadership, it's even more devastating. And that's what Jude is saying. Jude is saying, I want you to know something about him. And by the way, he gives six marks of the enemy within. I, I want you to look at these. Six marks of the enemy within. Six warning signs for us to watch out for. Number one, they come in by deception. They come in by deception. He says certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They're creepers. I think that's an interesting way to word it. They creep in. They slither in. But they do it with great, great deception. The word deception there is a Greek word that literally means to lodge stealthily. They creep in unawares. They look good in the beginning. And as a matter of fact, you're ready for like this. They look like not only a believer, they look like maybe the best of believers. They look so right with God. They have all the right words, all the right attitudes and actions. They, they probably know scripture in an incredible way. Please don't miss this. Satan knew scripture. Satan can quote scripture. And, and you need to know that, that they come in unaware. They sneak in. The second thing he says is this. They are a part of the church. They come in to belong and be a part of us. Now, this is really important to know. Jesus said, this is how the kingdom of God will be till the rapture happens. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then he explains it in verses 36 to 43, Jesus tells what's called the parable of the tares and the wheats. Now, now what he says is this. Jesus said, and the kingdom of God is like. In other words, this is the truth of the church. This is what the church is going to be like. The kingdom of God is like, he said, if I had a field and I sow wheat in it, and then at night my enemy, the devil, comes and he sows tares amongst the wheat. And then when the wheat and the tares come up, the angels look and say, someone, your enemy has come and sowed tares among the wheat. Now, what he's saying is this, in that area of the world, that Middle Eastern area, the wheat, when it's sprouting up, looks exactly like a particular kind of weed called a tare. The wheat will bear fruit, the tare will not, but in the beginning they look exactly alike. 
They just pop up together and the angels say, should we pluck them up? And Jesus said, no. Don't pluck them up because you might accidentally pluck up the, ter- the, the wheat too. You can't, in getting that weed, you may get the wheat. And, and he's saying, you know, you and I need to be careful. By the way, one of the things he is warning you and me about is let's don't be too quick to judge. You know, while we need to be careful, I hope today you're not going, ooh, I know that guy. He's one of those creepers. He cut in line to get coffee. He's got to be a creeper. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and, and we got to be careful of that. We got to be careful. Uh, but we also have to take care in this area. And Jesus said, that's what it's like. And he said, I'm going to let you leave the tares and the wheat until, until they're coming when the angels gather the real thing. It's the very coming at the end of the age. Now, now here's the point I want you to not miss. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. They could be a pastor and not be a Christian. They could be a, a leader in the church and not be a Christian. They could lead Bible studies and not be a Christian. We need to be aware of that. As a matter of fact, these who come in that way do that on purpose. They try to take status. And I want to tell you, there, I really believe, I really believe there's some of you in this room today that the reason it's hard to go to church is because of what some Christians did to you. It might have been your mom and dad. It might have been a, a, a brother. I, I know a girl whose brother supposedly became a Christian and was studying the Bible and could quote scripture and he just kept using it as a, an attack on her, an attack on her, an attack on her. And, and, and then we found out later this guy was so sexually immoral, had such a hidden life and, uh, and, and it just made it really difficult. And she actually one day was crying and I said, what's wrong? She goes, the sermon you just preached, I almost could hear my brother's voice. It scared me. Or maybe it was a father who screamed and yelled. One of my dearest friends her dad was an elder in a church when she was growing up. And, and after church, if he got mad about something, he would start screaming and yelling. And on more than one occasion, he would grab her and choke her until she passed out. We know, we know not everyone in the church is of the church. We know that's true of Crossroads. By the way, that's true of us. It's true of every church. And, and so we need to know they come in by deception. They're part of the church. Number three, they are marked out for condemnation. They are marked out for condemnation. Uh, that's what Jude says. He says, long ago, long ago, they were marked out for condemnation. In other words, here's what I don't want you to miss. This is no secret to God they're here and no surprise to God they're here. God, way before they were born, said that person's going to hell. And I know who they are and I know what they're going to do. I want you to know that's because God is omniscient. God knows everything. Nothing surprises God. God doesn't look and go, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. No, he never does that. He, know, he knows, and he knows who these people are, and he has already, before they were born, marked them out to be condemned to hell, which is probably why some of them don't preach about hell. And, and you know, God is clear about this. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false pro- teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many, this is what's scary. Look at this, or listen to this. Many will follow with their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God says they're marked out. Now, that might make you ask the question, do they have a choice? And the answer is yes, they do. 
But God knew the choice they would make. The God knew by foreknowledge what they would do. He didn't foreordain them to be evil. He didn't say you've got to be evil. He, he knew ahead of time they would do this. And knowing that, he marked them out to go to hell. And there are those who are hell bent in our churches. And God said they were marked out long ago. By the way, uh, God always gives a choice. Pharaoh, he gave a choice to. Remember Pharaoh raised up and God told Moses, I want you to go to the land of Egypt and say, let my people go. And he said, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And a lot of people go, wait a minute. Did Pharaoh have a choice? Yes, Pharaoh had a choice. God said, I will do it. He said that in Exodus chapter seven, verse three. But then what we see, if you study it, and I put it in your notes for you to study, in Exodus 7, and also once in Exodus 9, we see six times it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then, then later on, all the way in Exodus 9 verse 12, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now here's where I'm going. In other words, God said, I will harden his heart over there. And then six times he chose to be stubborn and harden his own heart against God. And then finally God said, okay, now that you've chosen to do that six times, I'm going to cement that in. He had a choice. These people have a choice. Everybody has a choice. You've got a choice. You could choose to follow God or not follow God. You can choose to have God's love or not have God's love. He wants it for you. Everybody has a choice. But number four, they're ungodly. Number four, they're ungodly. And by the way, Jude defines the ungodliness. And you've got to, I got to make sure we take time on this. Look back down. If you're in Jude, look down at verse 16. And notice the definition of an ungodly person. It says this. These are grumblers finding fault. These are grumblers finding fault. I want you to grab that. The first way they start to expose themselves is they're complainers. They're grumblers. They find fault. They, they use that, by the way, very often so they can gain superiority. Well, if you saw it the way I saw it, and they try to get people on their team being complainers and grumblers and finding fault. By the way, let me be as clear as I can. The Bible teaches you cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and be a complainer. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and be a complainer. Philippians 2.14 says it clear. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And whenever we turn to that, God sees how wrong it is. Next week, Jude gives an illustration. We'll look at of it. But people who are grumblers, complainers, finding fault are these kinds of people. And they're in every church. They're all around. And I got to tell you, this is all, my heart breaks for them. I, my heart breaks. I've watched it over the years. I, I, I got to tell you, I've seen it happen. I've seen like, like last week. Last week, man, God is moving. God is touching. People are crying. And 50 people came and gave their lives to Christ last week. 50 people. And then a group gathers going, yeah, it was just too loud. What? Yeah, I was a little out of control. It was out of our control. God took over. And you know, I just thought, what are you doing? And I'm, my heart breaks for people who can't rejoice in what God is doing. And, and they just go around my finding fault and making complaint, and, and, and it ruins them. And I've seen over the years this happen. It just ruins them. And, and it, it ruins others. And they draw people in. And they go, come on, let's all get together and complain. And, and they end up being worthless. And you might say, Chuck, who are you to say that? Here's the point. I'm not the one saying it. 
James, the brother of Jude, says this in chapter 1, verse 26 of James. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and this is a good use of the word religion. It means if anybody thinks himself to have the real faith, the true faith, and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and this man's religion is worthless. A person who's a complainer and can't bridle their tongue, they have no real faith, and they have no faith that will save them. It's it's worthless. It's worthless to them. They do not come into a real relationship with God. It's worthless to others because they hurt others. It has no value whatsoever, God says. Why? Because they can't bridle their tongue. They just complain, 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 complain. And I've watched them do it. I watch them gather teams to do it. Over the years, I've seen it happen time again. Come on, you know, we're not going to be in that church anymore. Come on, we're all going to get together in our living room. And they're going to gather people in their living room, complaining in their living room, doing nothing, being ineffective, and they call it spiritual. Where does that come from? I've watched some very gifted, godly people, at least it looked like on the outside, who were doing great things for God, getting groups like that, and go to have no effect whatsoever. They were just worthless. Just worthless. And they, one group sat around going, yeah, Crossroads doesn't do anything to help the poor. Well, first of all, in their living room, they did nothing to help the poor while we helped get 500 children out of extreme poverty. And and we're now going to do 2,000. And and I'm just going to get out there. Some person looked at me and said, well, I just don't like the megachurch. I said, well, guess what God does? And by the way, when has it ever been about what you like? By the way, God likes the megachurch. The first day the church was born, it was with 3,000 people. That's called a megachurch. And, and then it grew to 5, 10, 20, 30. Whenever God's hand gets on something, it grows. Here's why I'm glad for that. You know why I'm glad for that? Because when you and I get to heaven, it's going to be a mega experience. We're not going to have 200 people in heaven. It's going to be packed. An innumerable group of people. Like God wants to reach people. God wants to reach people. And a church that God has his hands on is going to do that. You can't stop it. And we shouldn't want to. But, but these people, it's all about what I want, I want, I want. And I go, wait, why isn't it about what God wants? And it, my heart breaks when people get like that and they're grumblers, complainers, finding fault. I had someone one time walk up to me and saying, did you see what was on stage? And I said, no, I was worshiping. My eyes were closed. I was just worshiping God. What were you looking at? You know, and and I'm not trying to be prideful. I'm like, what are you doing? And I'm not saying we shouldn't be careful about things, but it's like when they're finding fault all the time and complainers and they have their little private meetings and get their corner together. Here's the thing. We start to see them be exposed. They're ungodly because godly people praise God, give glory to God and and have love and speak loving words. That's what we do. And and we need to understand, you can spot that. Uh, By the way, it's really clear in in the Bible that when you have the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all things have fervent love for one another. And you watch people who are ungodly, they don't have that. They have all sorts of reasons not to have relationships with people. Well, I'm not going to have a relationship with you because you're all millennial. Yeah, boy, I don't want to catch that. You know, or you're a, I, I would be your friend, but you're a pre-millennial, but I'm a pre-millennial, but you're a mid-tribulation rapture, and I'm a pre-trib rapture, so we can't be friends. What? I had one guy one time say to me, man, I don't want to be around them. They pray with their eyes open. It's like, wait, what? Jesus prayed with his eyes open. And people, now see, here's my point. Do we break fellowship over those things? Do we say we're not going to love each other over that? See, though, you start betraying the fact that, that it's ungodly. 
A godly person loves. A godly person is generous. A godly person gives. A godly person upbuilds, doesn't tear down. And, and so they're, they're finding fault all the time. And they're always, they're, see, they, they do it to get superiority. Because if I could point out everybody else's faults, that means I'm the one who looks good. And the Bible warns you and me never to sit in the seat of the scoffer, a seat of judgment. And, and that's what they do. Jude goes on to say this, following after their own lust. They want what they want. They speak arrogantly. They speak like with superiority, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. And that's where, again, my heart breaks. They draw people in. Pam and I last night, if we were talking about what I'm sharing with you, um, we got in the car and we almost wanted to cry thinking of a young college guy who I knew that was so gifted. And he got drawn into a group that was this way. And today he's not attending church anywhere. He's not happy. We bumped into him years later and he's just, he could have been so much more. And they gained advantage and took him in. Verse 17, but you, ought, you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, in the last days, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Watch out. There are going to be people coming who mock and ridicule and want everything their way. Verse 19, these are the ones who cause division. Not unity, they bring division. Worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have love and you desire unity within the church and and you want to bring always reconciliation and love and care. You don't get little side huddles out there. And by the way, it's going to happen at Crossroads. It's going to happen in every church that people like that are going to infiltrate, come in, and, and at first they'll look good. But we were to contend earnestly for the faith. Or to contend earnestly. The, the fifth mark of them is they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, a license to sin. Um, I want you to know that it's not okay with God if we sin. And the reason you might say, well, well that, didn't that make sense? I bump into people all the time who some reason think that's okay. They'll say, well, I know so-and-so is doing, and they'll name some horrible act, but you know, the good news is they know God. I'm like, What? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I know that they're out doing these things, but they prayed the prayer. Let me be as clear as I can. You can pray the prayer and get baptized and still go to hell. It's not about that. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. You might say, well, wait a minute. I thought it's not by works. It's not by works. In other words, praying a prayer didn't get you to heaven. Getting baptized doesn't get you to heaven. That's works. What gets you to heaven is throwing yourselves in the arms of the Father and letting him do it for you. But you can't be in the arms of the Father and committing horrible sins. It's not okay with God. It, it, I, if I get drunk, I'm not okay with God. Now, let me be, I'm not. God would look and say, what are you doing? That is not right. I'm not, God and I have a problem at that moment because he's a holy God. If I were ever unfaithful to Pam, I would not be okay with God. If I'm mean-spirited and backbiting, I'm not okay with God. Those things are not okay. And and I don't know where we think that that this comes from. But in the Bible, we don't have a license to sin. Because you say, oh, I'm a Christian. Now I can do all of this. Well, you know what? No, you can't. Matter of fact, you shouldn't want to. And when you do, it ought to grieve you to the essence of who you are. Because you know why? Those sins killed our Savior. And that's not okay. Okay. His hands and feet were nailed to the cross. His blood was shed because of those kinds of sins. I don't know about you. That's not okay. I know out of love he did it, but it breaks my heart he had to do that for me because of what I did. 
And I hope it breaks your heart he has to do it for you. And I hope whenever you and I look at a sin and say, that is not worth the blood of the one I love the most, that I would do something like that. That's the attitude we should have. It's not okay. And, and whenever someone makes it a license to sin, then, then they, they, they have exposed themselves as, as one of those who are the enemy within. Uh, in Titus 1, 15 and 16, it says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but with the, both their mind and their conscience, they are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. By their deeds, they show they deny him. They will not live in submission to our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, which is number six. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny his lordship. They deny him being the master. They don't submit their life to him. Let me ask you a question. What is it that God has called you to do that you just would not do? Because that's going to tell you, is he your master and Lord? Or are you saying, no, whatever God tells me to do, I'll do hard if it even hurts a little to do it. You might say, does it ever hurt to obey God? You bet it does. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him take up his cross. The cross hurts. The good news is, is whenever I go through the pain of carrying the cross God's asked me to carry, I find myself dying to self and living for him, and I love it more. But sometimes you've got to have to die to things. God, God wants us to know that. And so here's the thing. Jude gives us six warnings, six warning signs. Six things to watch out for. And warning signs are always given out of love, always given for your protection. Um, Pam and I used to live in Tucson, Arizona, and um, I'll never forget a particular day because what happened, it was a very hot day, and yet in Tucson, very often you're going to have to work in your yard even in the heat. And This one young dad, he, he was. He was out working in the yard, his kids were in Little League. The games were going to be at night. He had to get these things done. While he was working in the yard, his wife was uh, pouring rat poison because their house was having rats come in from this field. And so they were trying to kill them off. And uh, so for some reason, she poured the rat poison in a, in a glass and she got distracted by one of her children and she stuck the glass in the refrigerator. And he's working in the yard and he comes in and opens the fridge and it looks like milk. And uh, he grabs it, and of course, we don't know exactly the thoughts, but just the assumption is, is that he thought it was milk and got it in his mouth before he could spit it out. Too much went down. And he died. Now, on the bottle, where's the warning? In the glass, there was nothing. And you know what? To this day, I, I mean, I really know to this day, but especially in that moment when Pam and I are trying to love Hunter, um, She's devastated that she had taken the poison and put it in a place with no warning. Jude is giving us a warning. A warning for you and I to make sure and be in the hands of the God who loves us. A warning for us to be careful for those who pretend to have faith and yet they're grumblers and fight fault finders and cause division. A warning we don't get caught up in that. A warning that we cling to Jesus. You see, I, I want to tell you today that I'm hoping, I'm hoping that God used this message to remind every one of us of something. We need to say, okay, Lord, am I right with you? So I want to ask you, are you right with the Lord today? Because he loves you and you have a choice. And today, if you're a Christian and you need to recommit yourself, I'm going to hope today you do that. And how do you do it? You tell him. You say to him, you know, I want the life you have for me. I, I don't want to be that way.
Maybe you're someone who at one time you've been hurt. There's been pain in your heart because of what someone else has done to you and you can't seem to come back. I'm going to ask you today to recommit your life to him and let him fire you up again. Maybe today you've never, ever given your life to Christ and, and you know, you know what? He loves you. He wants you, but he's the only way to the Father. And if you would say yes to him today, he would bring you to God. God would adopt you. You would truly become his child. By the way, not just in some religious sense, in that sense, in a very real faith-oriented sense. True religion is about having a very real intimate relationship with him. And if you're brand new, you might wonder, how do I do this? Well, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit starts touching you today and then you could pray a prayer where you say yes. That's what God's waiting for you to do is to say yes. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would truly stir in this room. God, be with those who've been hurt by someone who at one time said they're a Christian and they've wounded them and caused pain. I pray for a person who's sitting here today who when they got married, they thought they married a Christian and now they found out it's not true. The hurt, the pain, the agony has been horrible. It's been hard to come back and hard to feel fresh and alive and new. And I pray today, Lord, you'd put your hands on them and let them know that you love them and you have a plan for their life and you want them to know joy and you want them to know effectiveness and you want them to know the calling they have. And so I pray, God, you would touch anyone who's gone through that and let this church be their home. Father, I want to pray for anybody here today who they violated purity. And they know they need to stop. And I pray today they would commit to you they're going to stop and recommit their life or commit their life to you. Because Lord, you love them. You care about them and you have a better life for them. So I pray today they would open up to that. Father, I pray today for, for anyone who's struggling inside because they know, they know they've said things and used words that hurt and, and, and caused pain in others. And now today you're starting to tug and turn and they're not marked out for condemnation because they're sorry for it. And today they need to commit to you. They need to put themselves in your hands. And I pray, Lord, today for anyone who just needs to come to know you. I pray, oh God, that they're just sensing your call. They're sensing you love them. They're sensing that the reason you died is because you love them so much. And Lord, I pray they want to repent and they want to turn to you and they want to put themselves in your arms. And so Lord, I pray right now that they want to do that. So Lord, we pray today there will be many, many who will say yes to you. I'm going to ask that we keep praying and I'm going to ask if you're right with the Lord, would you do this? Would you start praying for people to say yes to God? Start begging him to touch them. And right now, I'm going to lead a prayer and ask you, if you want to say yes to the Lord, would you pray this prayer with me? Would you open up to God? Would you say, put yourself into his hands? Would you let yourself now be, be a person who's beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus? Would you do that? Would you just pray that prayer and say, I want the life. I want your love. And you're ready for this. If you pray that prayer, you're going to start to feel clean, alive, and new. He wants it for you. So if you want it, he wants you. Would you pray these words? Say this. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me and to cleanse me from all my sin. To heal me from hurt and from pain. 
to free me from fear and to make me alive, to make me brand new. And you want to make me yours. So I say yes. Get those words out. I say yes. I want you and I want your love and I want the life you have for me. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me yours completely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And if you pray that prayer today, praise God.